Well, look at your Bible at James 2. We just come to the close here and we have communion before us. In James 2, 25 and 26, let me back up just to 21. Let me read the text. In 2.21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was, was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And then he closes, but as for the body, he says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, the relationship between Saving faith and the fruit of faith are inseparably linked. That's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. We've noted, no question, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, salvation that is by grace alone is never truly alone. Works follow. You can't separate those two. Ron Sider, in The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, a book, was interviewed by C.T. regarding his book. Christianity Today asked this question, what troubles you most about evangelicals today? Sider, some would call a leading theologian, and they asked him, what troubles you most today? He said, the heart of the matter, quote, is the scandalous failure to live what we preach, The tragedy is that poll after poll by Gallup and Barna show that evangelicals live just like the world. There's supposed to be a radical transformation in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said the disconnect between our biblical beliefs and our practice is just, I think, heart-rendering. And he went on to say that evangelical Christians get divorced, and if you've been through that, Um, I recognize that. If you've been through that, I realize some of you are the victims of that. But Siders said evangelical Christians get divorced just as often as the general population. One poll that Barna did discovered that 90% of born-again Christians who were divorced got divorced after they accepted Christ. He goes on to cite cite sexual promiscuity, and he said there we're doing a little better than the general population. In other words, wherever the general population lives, we do a little bit better purity-wise. But he quoted Josh McDowell, and Josh McDowell estimated that we, that our evangelical youth are about 10% better than how the world lives. A Gallup study discovered that when they asked the question, do you object if a black neighbor moves next door? He said the answer was that the least prejudiced were Catholics and unbelievers. And then it went on to say that evangelicals and Southern Baptists were the worst. That's just a total disconnect, right? I mean, materialism continues to be an incredible scandal the average church member, and you've probably heard this before, gives about 2 per, 2.6% of their income. 26 that's it. 
In fact, if you add up the born-again Christians, at least on a survey, uh, out of the millions who would say that, 6% of born-again people tithe. 6%. In fact, Cider went on to say that cheap grace is right at the core of the problem. He said cheap grace results when we reduce the gospel to forgiveness of sins only, when we limit salvation to personal fire insurance against hell, and when we grasp only half of what the Bible says about sin, and when we embrace the individualism, the materialism, and the relativism of our culture. He said, I would think that the evangelicals would want to get biblical and define the gospel the way Jesus did. Then we'd see what it means that the way to get into the kingdom is through unconditional grace because Jesus died for us. He said, though, but it also means that, the, that embracing Jesus means not just getting fire insurance so that one doesn't go to hell, but it means embracing Jesus as Lord as well as Savior. He said salvation is more than just a right relationship with God through the forgiveness of sin. It's a transformed lifestyle that you can see visibly in the body of believers, end of quote. I mean, your faith has got to be seen. You've got to see it demonstrated. And James is going to obviously concur with that. And what James does in this book is give us a litmus test to see if our faith is credible. And he asked this question, what are the marks of genuine faith? And that's going to come up on the screen. And you've just seen this outline. We don't need to go through it. We've looked at trials, temptation, our obedience to God's word. It's tested in our reaction to partiality. And here's where we find ourselves. Our faith is tested in relationship to works. And we've said the last couple of weeks that there's an inseparable relationship with faith and works. Now, in showing us this relationship, James gives us, remember, four illustrations that describe the nature of saving faith. From 2.14 down through 26, pretty easy to understand, there's four illustrations. And we're on the last illustration. But the first two described a dead faith. We looked at that first one was hypocritical compassion. You remember that in verse 15? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And then he said, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. That's just hypocritical compassion. In other words, he gives us a negative illustration. That's not faith just to say to somebody, be warmed and be filled and not give them what is necessary. Then he took us to a second negative illustration, intellectual compassion. And how could we forget that in 2.18 where it says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then that famous verse there in 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and it says, shudder. So here, there's a hypocritical compassion, but secondly, there's an intellectual confession that is short of true saving faith for even the demons believe. So that's not true faith. That kind of faith, James says, does not save. You say, well, then what does save? How can I know if I have genuine faith? 
There's the next two illustrations. And the third positive illustration here is of authentic Abraham. And we looked at that last week. That he was justified by his works. And we walked all through that. And I don't have the time to back up on that this morning. Enough to say that if you weren't here, all of those messages are on our website that you can see. And we noted there that last week that he had that incredible act where he put Isaac on the altar at God's command only to have the angel stop him. And we noted there that the point of James is that Abraham had come to Christ in Genesis 15, 6. And we noted that at least 30 years later from Genesis 15, 6, God told him to sacrifice his only son. And we just noted there as he was willing to go forward to that, that James said it justified him. And we noted that there are two types of justification. There's justification at initial salvation. That's what we've experienced. But then we also noted that that word justified also speaks of validation. That here, his faith was already operative in the life of Abraham. And his act of Isaac validated or proved his faith. In fact, look at 2.22. There, James says, you see that faith was active along his works. I, I love that little phrase. In other words, it was active along, and that word there where it speaks of active along or working with means to cooperate, means to work together. And his works then, namely Isaac, supported and sustained the fact that his faith was alive. And I think it's obvious to see that faith comes first, his works followed. In fact, look at the end of verse 22. It said his faith was here, completed by his works. There you have it. It means it was brought to maturity by his works. So for James, the activity on the mountaintop in 22 is the fruit of faith from Genesis 15. Someone put it this way. They said Abraham was not saved by faith plus works, but by a faith that works. Now, the point is, in the same way that Abraham's works revealed his faith, so too for any of you who would claim Christ this morning, you must show your faith by your actions. That's the only way that it's going to be known and demonstrated. Which brings me here to the fourth and final illustration. It's Rahab's courageous act. Look at it. It's there in 25. In the same way, was not, was, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Now, you'll note that opening phrase there, in the same way, in the same way as Abraham. In other words, in the same way that Abraham was justified by works, Rahab proved her faith by her courageous act. And so he does James as he's writing here. He kind of gives you those two negative illustrations to come back with two positive illustrations that you can see. You can see Abraham's act of offering up Isaac that validated his faith. And now he points to, to Rahab, whose act of faith proved 
and validated her faith. Now you say, well, Scott, why does he go from Abraham to Rahab? Well, it's in the scripture as you see. My only thought is maybe as some of James' first readers and maybe even us this morning, maybe you think of Abraham as a superhero. Maybe you think of his sacrifice as so heroic that maybe you could never come to that and never imitate Abraham's faith. So James perhaps uh, gives you one that you can follow in Rahab's example of courageous faith. Now, though Rahab's faith was very much like that of Abraham's, she was unlike him in almost every way, right? I mean, if you just kind of just, the, the way the scripture puts this together is amazing. I mean, she is almost different in every conceivable way except by faith. I mean, think, let me just give you this little grocery list. Think of Abraham, who was a patriarch. Then you got Rahab, who's a prostitute. You've got Abraham, who's one of the most respected men on the earth. He's one of the most noble men on the earth. Then you've got Rahab, who's a prostitute, who's disreputable, who's ignoble. The contrast couldn't be greater. Then you've got Abraham, who is the father of the faithful. He's the father to the Jewish people. He's our spiritual father, according to Romans chapter 4. Then he's a Hebrew at that, and he's also a man. Then on the other hand, you've got Rahab, who's a foreigner, and at least in the society in which the Bible wrote, she's a woman, and then at that, she's a Gentile woman. And when I say a woman, I, of course, don't mean anything by that, but at least according to the culture of the day, Abraham's the guy who's going to get all the kudos, if you will. Then you've got a guy like Abraham at the top of the social and economic ladder, And then you've got Rahab, who's at the bottom of the food chain, if you will. You've got Abraham, who's the receiver of the divine promises of God, who God and the Scriptures and James says is a friend of God. Then you've got a woman named Rahab, who's the breaker of God's moral laws and the enemy of God, because she's without God and without Christ. So in Abraham, do you see it? And in Rahab, we have two entirely different characters, two completely diverse backgrounds, but both, right, equally transformed by the gospel of grace, right? Now, you might say, what were Rahab's works? What did she do? Well, it's, look, it's listed right there in Scripture. There's just two of them. It's not hard to see. It says in 25, look what it says. In the same way... Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified? And it means she was validated, justified by works. Here's the two things. When she received the messengers, number one. And then secondly, she sent them out another way. She welcomed him in, and we'll turn to it in a moment. And she sent them out another way. You remember that she lived on the wall, if you will, if this is the wall going into the city, She lived kind of on the outside of the wall was her house, and she let the spies go through the window. Now, this compelling story of Rahab is told in Joshua 2, so I want you to turn there. I don't want to miss this account here. 
Look over to Joshua chapter 2, and um, we'll look at that great account there and find out about her great faith, okay? Joshua chapter 2 is the account that we find here of the story of Rahab regarding the walls of Jericho. Now, just as you turn to Joshua 2, do you remember that obviously the other books had taken place? Israel as a nation was on the verge of entering into the promised land. You remember that Joshua, here the writer of this book, took over the leadership from Moses of the nation of Israel, and that entire nation, some millions of people, was ready to cross the Jordan, and they were ready to occupy the land. You remember that. So Joshua sent two what? Spies. He sent two spies in what we would call a covert operation to check it out. Presumably these Navy SEALs swam the Jordan River at night under the cloak of darkness. The spies um, approached that city. So pick up the account and we'll just, you follow along. In Joshua 2.1, it says, In Joshua, the son of Nun sent two men to search or secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have, have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up, remember that, to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax and she had laid, that she had laid an order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as to the fords and the gate was shut and as soon as the pursuers had gone out. There's the account. Rahab, we could just say, lied to those men who came or those soldiers who came and she hid the spies. Now, you know that account, and we'll talk about that in just in a moment, but what prompted her to do that? In fact, she just did that, and the text is clear that she was a prostitute, but why did she do that? And did Rahab know the God of Israel? Did, did she know who Yahweh was? Did she know who God was? And my answer is, absolutely did she know God. And I don't know what the time frame is. You say, well, why would you say that, Scott? Look back at verse 8. Here's what she said. Before, in 2.8, the men lay down. She came up to them on the roof. Listen to her words. Verse 9. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that of all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, listen to what she said, 
Our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And then this deal breaker. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That is an incredible statement, is it not? I mean, Rahab right there in 2.11 testified that the God of Israel is the Lord. And she had placed her trust in God. Now listen, she may have not known the intricate details of the faith. I'm sure she didn't, right? She didn't know exactly all the components of that, but she knew who God was. And God saved her on the basis of her faith. Now, if you're looking for a chapter and a verse, you can't say Rahab placed her faith, but that statement right there in verse 11 For the Lord your God, he is the God of heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now, the time when she believed, I'm not sure. But the point being, though, and follow me me with this, faith was first, fair, and her deeds followed. When she believed those reports, she was justified and she hid the spies then her faith was vindicated. And so again, just like Abraham, faith was foundational, works followed. I mean, just for a moment, you say, okay, she, she hid the spies, she put them on the roof, she told the guys a, a different story. But I want, to know, want you to notice what she didn't say. She didn't say, hey, be warmed and be filled. She didn't say to, to the to the men when they came to their door, hey, I hope you don't get caught. She didn't slam the door in their face. She didn't go hide them up on her roof and only tell the soldiers, hey, I just did this. I put them up on the roof. No, she acted. There's the point. Her faith went to work. And she just had but one request. What's the request? Look down at verse 12. Here's her request to those men. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. Then you will save alive my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who, are, who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death if you do not tell the business of ours. Then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So this, she knew God was going to respond, but her faith was already working. See, saving faith always leads to act of righteousness. True faith, this is James' point, is always reflected in some kind of visible external deeds. So she made the men promise that. Then look what happened, verse 15. And here was the act itself in 2.25. Then she let them down. Can you just picture that? By the rope through the window. For her house was built into the city wall. For, for that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you. And hide three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. What an account. It happened just as she said. In faith, 
she acted, and in that act of faith, James declared her works justified her, not in the saving way she had already believed, but they validated her faith in God when she both received the messengers and then sent them out another way. The spies added one stipulation. Look at it in verse 17. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall, it says, tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and you shall gather into your house, your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household and so forth. And they gave him a warning not to go out. Now you say, well, what happened? Well, the story comes to a wonderful conclusion, doesn't it? You can go to chapter 3. Remember, Israel's still on the other side of the Jordan. They have to prepare to cross the Jordan, so they cross the Jordan. Chapter 4, there's a memorial stone set up. Chapter 5, they circumcise that new generation. And then in chapter 6 is the fall of Jericho. And you remember that with the trumpets, and they marched around it and pick it up in 620. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown in 620 of Joshua. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet... The people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied out the land... Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring them out there, bring out from there the women and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been had been spies, went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Wow. I mean, she was spared. And now, just, just for a moment here. You see, she lied. She did lie. There's no other way to say it. She lied. But I just want to say this. I don't want to go into the whole ethics of that. We could be here longer than we should. She is not commended for her lie. She's commended for her what? Her act of faith. Okay? She's not, and then you have to understand the background of how she grew up in a pagan culture, even as a prostitute, but she's not commended for lying. She's commended for her act of faith. You say, how is she commended? Well, she's commended in James 2.25 for her righteous act, but she's not just commended there. Where else is she commended? In the book of Hebrews. Would you go there just for a second? Go over to the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, it will tell us something very important about this woman. Hebrews chapter 11, you know that that's the chapter of the heroes of faith, and it mentions a number of heroes of the faith, but it says this, she's one of them, is she not? It says in 1131, by faith, that's our point, Rahab, the prostitute, did you notice that the writer of Hebrews didn't mince the word? I think there's a number of, uh, not a number, there's a small handful of uh, ancient scholars who try to 
tweak that word, that they only make her an innkeeper. But that word both in the Greek and that word both in the Hebrew means exactly what it says. By faith, verse 31, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. Here it is, because she had gone, she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She is commended not for her lie, but she is commended for her act of faith. And you know, when you go through the other people in Hebrews 11, they're not all perfect in their life. They all had, if you will, sins in their life. But at one point, at one time, and maybe multiple times, they were commended for their acts of faith, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Gideon, whether it's Samson, whether it's David, whether it's Samuel. You can go through all of them. Abraham, we've already seen, was commended. And even in chapter 11, he's commended. But he also had the incident, did he not, with Ishmael and Hagar. You think about Gideon being commended for his act of faith being used of God. But remember, he had to be convinced through two fleece circumstances to move forward. You think of Samson, he's commended for his act of faith, but outside of his battles with the Philistines, there appears to be little in Samson's life that's worth commendation. You think of David, the great man of God, the great man of faith. Here, we certainly know he was a man after God's own heart, but he sinned greatly. You have Samuel listed in Hebrews chapter 11, and he did not learn from Eli's bad example regarding Eli's own children. But then sadly, he allowed his own sons to take advantage of their leadership position. Listen, Hebrews 11 does not commend every aspect of a person's life. Neither Joshua nor the writer of Hebrews nor James dwells on Rahab's immoral past or the inaccurate information that she gave the messengers of importance is her faith in God that received the messengers and sent them out another way. Enough just to say this. Rahab's faith and her works, were they not? Were working side by side. And on the basis of Rahab's courageous act, her faith, where she had at one point trusted in God, was validated when she received these messengers. You know what's so cool about this? Are you ready for this? And some of you know this. Rahab, the harlot, Rahab, the prostitute, is listed. Where else? Do you remember? In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, in the human lineage of Jesus Christ. You say, she is? Yeah, let me just show you. Some of you might need to see this with your eyes, right? Because all we're doing is from the Scripture. Look back. We just read these genealogies so quick, and sometimes we just skip over them. But maybe if you've skipped over in a quick reading, in your Bible reading, have you caught this in Matthew 1.5? And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King who? David. Rahab, you talk about grace, is the great-grandmother of King David, through whose line Jesus Christ would come. Isn't that amazing? Now, I can't prove this, but you see this in Matthew 1, 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Do you know, it's not directly in the scripture. It's in extra biblical literature. 
There are a number of people who believe, Jewish scholars, who believe that Salmon was one of the two spies. So this is an amazing story. If that's the case, one of the two spies who came into her inn that night and came back later at the destruction could be one of the ones that married Rahab, who then the lineage is there leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. We have a marvelous God, do we not? So James, look back, and we'll just close it out as we go to the Lord's table. James just closes this section out, and he just, he proves this point in James chapter 2, 26, for the body, we get this, you just read it, apart from the spirit is, what, dead, so also, here's the analogy, faith apart from works is, what, dead. I mean, apart from the spirit or the breath, the body is dead. And apart from faith, if you will, apart from works, faith is dead. So just as a body without the spirit is nothing more than a corpse, so too faith without works is what? Dead. And it doesn't mean that somebody's immature. It means obviously they're not saved. I mean, that's what's at stake here. You know that. We're not talking about, here, Abraham's got the mature faith in Rahab, and then other people live less mature. No, we're saying what James is saying, that if there's no works backing up the profession of faith, then the faith is dead. It's like a dead body. Have you ever seen a dead body? I mean, I don't mean to be crass, but I remember being at junior college when we're in biology class, and they said that we were going to have a visitor that day and they gave her a name and her name was Ethel. And so they introduced Ethel and instead of Ethel coming out and speaking to the class, they willed her out. It was a cadaver body. Now, why they gave her the name Ethel, I don't know. And I don't mean to offend anybody if your grandma's name Ethel. But there was Ethel, just dead. There, You know, just her... Her lungs were opened up. You can tell that she was a smoker. I mean, I'm not trying to be gross, but you knew that there was a, a body there, but you knew there was no spirit. There was no breath there. That body was dead. I'm thinking of the other time when my neighbor, I think I've shared that with you, died of a heart attack. He, there was no breath coming from him. And if you put the paper in front of him, it wouldn't be going like this because there's no breath coming through his, his nose. There's no breath coming through his, his mouth. There, there's no life there. James just makes this analogy. If there's no works that accompany your faith, then there's no life in what you profess. And James just says, listen, here's what real authentic faith looks like. You've got false faith. You've got hypocritical compassion that does nothing. That's a false faith. You've got intellectual confession. Hey, you do great. The demons believe that. Then he takes us to authentic Abraham, who 30 years prior trusted Christ when he believed God. And 30 years later, his faith is at work with Isaac. And you've got Rahab. Don't know the time frame, but the fear of the Lord fell upon her. And she cried out to God. And then when those guys showed up at her door then her faith went to work. I'm just saying to you, you cannot bank on a past decision apart from your life. You can't just say, hey, when I was five, when I was six, when I was seven, and for 30 some odd years, my life looks no different. If your faith is real, if my faith is real, then it's going to show, right?
And there's that song that we always gave the last two weeks. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, say amen. If you're happy and you know it, then it says your life will surely what? Show it. And so here, it's all a work of God. So listen, beloved, let's put it into practice. You saw Tal and Stacy put it into practice. Now, they're not going to be up here, and they didn't know I was probably going to say this. I get what Tal said. It'd be real easy, real easy. Hey, he's getting a little older. Hey, we already said this, 15, just let it go. And, 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 and not just them. What's God doing in your life? So I'm, you know, this isn't about what I'm preaching, and what, what is he doing with you? What acts of faith, not to, not to gain salvation, you know, what acts of faith is he putting on your heart? What ministry is he putting on your heart? What person is he putting on your heart? In what way does God want you to obey him to put your faith into action? And are you willing to obey? And are you willing to risk? And are you willing to get out of your comfort zone? And are you willing to get out on the edge of a cliff? You know, I said a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, you know, maybe you'd say, God never asked me to sacrifice a child or to hide two of God's messengers. How do I appropriate this message? I'm a mom, Scott, or I'm a student, or I'm even retired, pastor, or I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm just a single. Listen, here it is. Abraham and Rahab put everything on the chopping block for the Lord. They entrusted everything that they possessed everything that they loved and everything that was dear to them without reservation to the Lord's care. You know, I, I, maybe I went too fast. I'm out of time. Rahab risked her life, her mom's life, her brother's life, her dad's life. Her, all of, if they found out she was hiding them, she would have been really offered up real quick in short order. See, on the line were their families, their hopes, Life itself, and whatever the cost, wherever the sacrifice, nothing would be held back to please the God they trusted. Is that how you are? Or maybe I should just say, I'm asking, you got comfortable? You've been in Christ a long time, maybe I'd say through the Spirit of God, so what? I don't know. I don't mean to be rude. What are you doing for the Lord? And, and you say, well, Scott, I, Pastor, I don't know. Well, maybe you need to start praying that God would reveal what it is that he wants us to do as a church to get on the edge, retired people. You know, the Christian life isn't you just cruise at the end, right? I mean, we know that. So maybe he wants something out of us, but here James is clear. Authentic faith looks like Abraham at great cost. Authentic faith looks like Rahab's courageous act who would risk her own life. And the question for you this morning is this. Do you have a real genuine faith that demonstrates its life through deeds of courageous faith? May God make us a church, amen, like that. May God make us individuals like that. And I don't know what goes on in Stacy's mind other than it's the Lord. When you walk into a restaurant and he impresses that upon you and then he makes it work, I pray that we'd have that kind of joy to be used by the Lord.